Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Welcome to NSI Live. I'm Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anson Scalia Law School. NSI was founded four years ago to fill a gap in academia by standing up for a robust national security posture and to provide actionable recommendations to policymakers. As part of this mission, we're focused on two of the most pressing issues in national security today, countering China's rise and preserving U.S. technology innovation leadership. Today, I'm excited to welcome NSI advisory board member and former CIA executive Carmen Bendita to moderate a discussion on the rise of China and whether conflict is truly inevitable. Carmen will be joined today by Admiral James Savridis and Elliot Ackerman, who will discuss their new book, 2034, A Novel of the Next World War, and dive into the future of U.S. geopolitical competition with China. Admiral Savridis was most recently the dean of the Fletcher School, previously served as commander of Southcom and Supreme, Al- Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. Admiral Savridis is an accomplished author, publishing 10 books on leadership, the oceans, maritime affairs, and Latin America, as well as hundreds of articles in leading journals. Elliot Ackerman is both a former White House fellow and Marine, served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he was awarded the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. His work has been nominated for several awards to include the National Book Award, the Andrew Carnegie Medal of both fiction and nonfiction, and the Dayton Literary Prize, among others. Admiral Savides and Elliot, thanks for joining us. Carmen, over to you. Thanks very much, Jamil and Admiral and Elliot. Thank you very much for joining us and discussing the book, which I found really uh, quite compelling, very interesting, and in several places, pretty surprising. So the book begins in March of 2034, and I'm not giving away any of the plot because it kind of happens in the first couple of chapters when China precipitates a confrontation with the U.S. in the South China Sea, which is actually part of a bigger calculation, bigger plot that they have. And uh, what we don't know, because that's where the book begins, is what has happened in the 15 years from today until 2034 that led China to calculate that it was time to engineer this confrontation. So, Admiral, is there a backstory that was in your mind uh, that, that motivated the Chinese to do what they did? Um, yes, there was very much, Carmen. And by the way, thank you for your service at the Central Intelligence Agency, a, a deeply important way to serve this nation. Um, let's start with the date. Um, a number of my very senior friends uh, who are either retired admirals or generals or very senior policymakers have said to me, Stavridis, you wrote a great book, but you got one big thing wrong, the date. This is all going to happen much sooner than 2034. So point one is, uh, who knows how soon we really hit the potential for an event like this, a precipitating event, as you called it. Um, Point two to be made is, if we just stay on the current trajectory, I think in 10 to 15 years, we will hit a moment of maximum danger. And here's why. Uh, China, in my view, will not back down on their claims of sovereign ownership of the South China Sea, an enormous body of water, half the size of the continental United States of America, the size of uh, the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea combined. China claims it as territorial waters. 
I don't think they're going to back down. They're certainly not going to back down on Taiwan as part of China. If they have to do that by force, they will. Um, our trade and tariff disagreements, I think, are only going to sharpen uh, going forward as their economy comes fully into bloom, if you will, and they execute their very compelling, very clever geo-economic strategy, one belt, one road. And then finally, Carmen, look at the trend line of technology. Um, China uh, may or may not by 2034 have precisely the suite of capabilities we postulate in the novel. It is fiction after all, but the trend lines would lead me to believe it's a distinct possibility particularly, and we don't address this heavily in the book, but particularly if quantum computing comes into significant play, as I think it will by the end of this decade, that will open the gateway for some of the technology uh, that we unveil in 2034. So could it be sooner? Yes. But I feel intuitively that the, the time frame is about 10 to 15 years from now. And I'll close with this. There's good news there. We're reverse engineer this thing to bring it back to the present, to take the steps necessary to avoid what would be a catastrophe for both nations. Yeah, the thought entered my mind, too, that some of these events could have happened sooner than than in the book. Uh, Elliot, uh, Admiral mentioned the importance of sort of cyber and technology in the plot. And that is certainly uh, I think a very well depicted uh, use of cyber and how it could be used in warfare. And I think that's one of the strengths of the book. I think another strength of the book, not to give away too much of the plot, is that a critical role in the storyline is played by India. And uh, it, it struck me as uh, clever compelling and perhaps a you're you're using India in such a prominent role perhaps is it because you believe that the potential of India going forward on the world stage is being ignored because that of our concentration on the US China competition again uh, thanks so much for having us Carmen the I think the use of India is, is twofold um, First off, I think, as you noted, it is interesting to focus on and consider India's place in the world in the next two decades. Um, obviously, India demographically is a young nation. It's a nation that at this moment might not seem as though it necessarily has the, uh, the infrastructure to be a peer-level competitor with nations like the United States and China. Uh, however, projecting forward, you know, that very well might change. Uh, Additionally, though, I'm kind of at the macro level, you know, this book, I think, also asks questions about warfare and geopolitical questions that are very much, yes, of this future we've imagined, but are, are timeless. And, um, you know, one of those is if we look back at the 20th century, you know, we can see that the 20th century, at least the last hundred years, I think we had certainly characterized them as an American century. And that was an American century that was birthed out of two world wars. You know, European conflagrations that really forged the century. And those were wars that the United States did not start, uh, but the United States certainly finished and very much benefited from. So entering a project like 2034, you know, imagining the next world war, which as you notice, you know, precipitated by China, but 
very quickly escalated by the United States, there's obviously this question, both as we look forward and we look backwards, which is, you know, how do nations that start wars with one another, how do they fare? And as we sit here in the year 2021, the United States has certainly gotten very good at starting wars. We've started a number of wars, something we didn't seem to do as much of in our history, but we haven't gotten quite as good at ending them. And so the question of the book becomes, who ends this war? The United States and China begin it, but who ends it? And how does it end? And without you know, spoiling the book, I'd say, uh, you know, it is, I think, somewhat unexpected how, who ends it and who is the real beneficiary of this war. And so we wanted to interrogate that question, too. Yeah, I think that uh, that is actually a, a it very early on becomes an important theme in this uh, novel is how the heck do you end what you've begun? And uh, people searching for a way to exit is, is definitely a dynamic. Two of the key characters driving the plot on the American side and on the Chinese side are of mixed identity. So you have on the American side, a someone of South Asian Indian background, who's a very prominent player. And then you have on the Chinese side, a Chinese who studied in the US and in fact, his mother was American. So I, I'm curious whether or not there's any deeper meaning to that in, in terms of a point that you're trying to make in the book of this sort of mixed, confused uh, identity of, of two of the protagonists, Admiral? Uh, certainly a theme running through the book is that of immigration, globalization, and there's uh, no question that the United States, uh, in particular, I would say, has benefited from immigration. Uh, people like uh, Sandy Chowdhury, who you're describing as a deputy national security advisor, he's first generation Indian American, uh, is traveling around the world to embassies, U.S. embassies, Everywhere I went, I would see lines of people who want to emigrate to the United States of America. Um, do we need to control our borders? Sure. But that's a positive, powerful advantage for the United States. So I looked at Chaudhuri as someone who carried that mantle uh, of the power of immigration for the United States. In terms of Lin Bao, the uh, Chinese admiral, it, it often surprises people when I say this, but I empathize more with him than any other character. He just wanted to get back to sea, to sail again, to be around sailors. And at the end of his career, he hoped to become a professor, to teach. There's a lot to like about Lin Bao. And, and, and that, I think, is an important point in this novel, is there really are no good guys, bad guys, per se. Um, war is the villain in this piece. Yes. Elliot, do you have anything to add there? Sure. You know, I would just add, you know, because you asked about kind of macro themes, too. I think it's, you know, it is evident the world is becoming a smaller place. And so when we're imagining what the world looks like in 2034, I think it makes sense that you're going to see just increasing numbers of people who their nationality is not quite as just crystal clear as maybe it's been in decades and even centuries past. So a lot more of this, uh, of this blending. So I think that was something that certainly felt true to the both of us in the writing of the book. Um, I would only add, and this is, you know, the novelist speaking as well, you know, we had a vision for this book where we want, we didn't want to create a big doorstopper of a book with 
appendices of, of every character and who they were that, you know, a reader would have to cross from. So we wanted the reader to be able to hold the primary characters in his or her mind as they were enjoying this book. So knowing that we were going to be dealing with a limited cast of characters, we also knew, just mechanically speaking, we were going to have to sort of traverse the world with those characters. So from a plot standpoint as well, it's like, all right, well, we need to have reasons why different characters are moving around. So just also having the characters rooted in those places and having the context, the reason that, you know, a character like Sandy Chowdhury can get on a plane and go to India. It, it's convenient as well that he has family there. So, um, so, so twofold. Yes, we were, you know, we were glad we were making that type of macro commentary, but, um, but there was also a, a utilitarian side to it as well. I want to just uh, add a point, Carmen, if I could, which is uh, talking about the trends and the messages in the book. A huge one is about women. Um, the Commodore who is sailing these three ships through the contested waters is a woman named Sarah Hunt, who becomes a surface line officer after uh, she is injured while serving as one of the nation's first SEALs. I think that's entirely realistic in the 10 to 15 year future. We also see a president of the United States who is a woman. Again, not going to surprise anybody. But the point is, back to your question, is this about the rise of India, the rise of China somewhat? Is this about a globalization, these uh, blended individuals? Absolutely. This is also about the rise of women, because I think at the end of the day, the greater phenomena of the 21st century, greater than the rise of India or China, 300 years from now, when a historian looks at this century, they will be writing about the rise of women. That'll be the most profound thing that happens in this century, in my view. Excellent point. As a woman, I, I, I perhaps am motivated to agree. So one thing I, I looked for was some kind of Chinese reaction to your book, something in Chinese newspapers. And I Googled it, but couldn't find anything. But I did find a, an interesting comment on the future of U.S.-Chinese relations from on one of my favorite go-to blogs to understand China, read more deeply in China, which is a, a blog called Reading the China Dream, which is a, uh, are you familiar with it, Admiral? Oh, of course. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think an academic, a U.S. academic in New York, I believe, who scans the Chinese journals and publishes, translates and publishes uh, their work. So he's quoting uh, Qi Tao, who is the Dean of International Relations and Diplomacy at the Be Beijing Foreign Studies University. So a pretty prominent and uh, youngish uh, Chinese academic. And his quote is as follows, all politics are constructed, dot, dot, dot. Whether China is a strategic competitor with which America can peacefully coexist or an existential threat is to a great degree the result of decisions made by the political elite in both countries. So Admiral, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you with this question. Is there something inherent in the US-China relationship? I mean, this is a spectrum, obviously. Or is he right that which way the US-China relationship goes is really going to result uh, de depend on the personalities of the leaders leaders of both countries. I'm going to cheat, of course, and say both. And um, the first thing we should all do is run out and look at Graham Allison's book, uh, "Destined for War: Can the U.S. and China Avoid the Thucydides Trap?" 
which surveys 18 periods in, in history, going back to the ancient Greeks, whenever a established power is challenged by a rising power, the chances of the two nations going to war in a global setting is roughly two in three. So history is not encouraging. Um, are we destined for war? I don't think we are irrevocably destined for war, but I think we are predisposed to a war. So here's where we get to the second part. If we have leaders who are intelligent and imaginative and willing to work and to compromise and are not completely consumed by the politics of their individual nation, then I think we have that one in three chance of avoiding the Thucydides trap. Whether President Xi, who it appears will be pretty primal for the next decade, depending on his health, of course, um, we in the United States, on the other hand, will probably turn over two, three presidents over the next 15 years. Um, that band of brothers and sisters have got to get this right. Um, and so a huge motivation in writing 2034 for both of us was to get it on the desk of policymakers so that they could read it, imagine how terrible it would be, and try and reverse engineer this so we can avoid it. Elliot, do you have a comment on, uh, is it inevitable that there's a conflict or is there room for imaginative leadership solutions? I don't think it's, it's ever inevitable that there is going to be a, a conflict. Uh, I think that, uh, and I think that imagination, you know, that might sound like it's sort of, you know, wishy-washy and convoluted, but I think if you look, you know, for, you know, most acutely in the in the Cold War, you know, the type of deep imagining that we had done, the Soviet Union had done, to to understand that it was in neither of our best interests to go to war is what, in many respects, allowed us to avoid that war. You know, what's concerning, I think, right now is how quickly uh, a near peer competitor has snuck up on us in the guise of the Chinese, and also how the United States, our conception of war has changed, particularly over the last two decades into something that's more anesthetized. The idea of that, you know, we can go to war and it doesn't really affect us, right? Because we've been fighting these wars in the Middle East for so long. I think the combination of those two makes, at least from the U.S. standpoint, makes us vulnerable to sleepwalking into a war. So, you know, the type of imagining we're doing, the type of conversations we're having here today uh, hopefully serve as an inoculation to keep us from making those mistakes, which would not be in our best interest. And I would argue would probably not be in the interest of the Chinese either. You know, just as we were saying before, if you look at the Second World War, you look at the people who started that war at both sides, it didn't turn out well for any of them. Right. Yep. Uh, Admiral, uh, you, you wrote with Elliot a, a work of fiction. And I wonder whether or not the fact that it was a work of fiction allowed you to say things, describe scenarios, explore possibilities that you would perhaps have been reluctant to do in nonfiction. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think it would be very hard, at least for me, to uh, write a policy paper that said, here's what a war with China could look like but there would be no way to filter it through the characters, through the human reactions, through the emotions um, that you get to do when you are writing a work of fiction. And the most obvious one, and you allude to it correctly, Carmen, is you, you throw off the straitjacket of fiction and you don't have to footnote everything. You don't have to meticulously be able to document where everything comes from. You yourself have 
published countless intelligence reports that have gone to the most senior policymakers in the United States. And I'm sure you stayed awake at night making sure that you could prove or as close as you could to that um, before you got to the analysis piece. And you, you can kind of lose that. And therefore, you can really throw a lot of paint around the canvas. And so it's fun. You reach a broader audience. I just got an email from a dear friend headed to St. John's for the first post-pandemic. And she said, and I'm reading your book on the beach and I'm going to walk up and down and go to the bar with your book under my arm. Everyone ought to read this book. Uh, you know, it's going to reach a broader audience. If I wrote a policy paper, particularly at a classified level, it certainly wouldn't be on the beach at St. John's. And I think that's a part of the charm of, of doing fiction. Plus, I'd done nine nonfiction books. I wanted to try my hand at fiction. And Elliot was willing to take on an apprentice. He's the experienced novelist. You should maybe ask him that question. So actually, Elliot, was uh, you've mostly written, I guess, fiction uh, in your writing career. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, did writing the story of another war in fiction, that, was that easier for you? Or were there still certain topics that you just didn't want to go there? Um, I was saying, you know, I do a lot of work as a journalist, uh, too. So I'm, I'm certainly no stranger to to writing nonfiction, although usually I, I tend to write kind of more like reportage, uh, not, you know, heavily footnoted nonfiction. Um, uh, for all the reasons uh, Jim laid out, I'm, I guess I'm not, I'm not so good in the straitjacket. But um, I think for me, this book, you know, was mostly just a departure in, in collaborating. And I think, you know, collaborating was a great joy, a lot of fun. Uh, two heads are better than one in these scenarios. And it was a lot of fun to be able to sort of riff off each other as, you know, as the pages were coming in, the ideas were coming in. Uh, and so it's, it's nice to have a partner where you can breathe life into each other's ideas. Um, so, so for me, that was the, the real departure and joy of this book. Yeah, it, it is actually, uh, I will say, a, a very good, easy, quick read if you're not the kind of person that would normally pick up a book about military issues or war, I, I actually would encourage you to pick it up because it was, uh, it was a delight to read, very, very straightforward. So Elliot, uh, one question, uh, or one thing that just popped out in me as I read the book was that almost everyone who was driving the plot worked for a defense ministry, you know, whether it was, uh, or, or, or was linked to a defense ministry except in the U.S., where most of the action in the U.S. occurred in the National Security Council. So uh, you, was there any, were you saying something, is there a message uh, hidden there in the fact that the defense ministry was so dominant everywhere, but in the U.S., or is it just an accident of the plot? I would say it was more an accident, more an, not an accident of the plot, but um, I think we wanted uh, we wanted to put readers in places where they would feel like they could orient themselves relatively quickly. Um, and I would say also one of the things that just in terms of the tone of the book that's challenging when you're writing a book like this is you obviously, because you're talking about national level issues, you're going to have figures potentially step on the page, like you know the heads of nations and others who by definition suck up all the oxygen in a room but you can't draw a great human scene and show people engaging. It's tough to do that when someone takes up 
all of the oxygen in the room. So like you'll notice, for instance, the President of the United States, although she is often mentioned in the book, you know, we don't assign her a name. Uh, and she's frequently, aside from only one or two incidences, off stage, and you kind of see her walk in. And that's really only because uh, just, just, just from an artistic sensibility, we knew you know, if we put her in the middle of the scene, well, she's going to dominate the scene. And who she is is going to dominate. I mean, a whole chapter two, you could write another book about this person. So there's this constant, and I say not just with, with that character, but other characters um, where, yes, you need, you need to obviously nod to the fact that they're there. But this book is sort of taking place where so often the action really does take place. It's just sort of that level, like just one level below. Where, where, you know, where the, the, as you know, the bureaucratic battles are, 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 are taking place um, and you're really in the trenches. And, you know, and we, I think we knew like, that, that was going to be the milieu of this book. Yes. Um, can I just add something? Yes. Because I know, I know what you're really asking, uh, Carmen. You're saying, why wasn't there some intelligence officer right at the center of this thing? Got it. So here's my, uh, I'm going to make some news. Elliot and I have agreed with Penguin Press, our publisher, to publish a two-book sequel to 2034. Oh. It'll make it a trilogy, and we have already sort of framed it up, and there are not one, but two intelligence officers, uh-huh. very central to the plot of the sequel. So, uh-huh. Well, I don't know if that's going to be enough, but uh, it's a start. <laughs> it's a start. So I, I had noticed, actually, Elliot, uh, when I read the book, the absence of the senior leaders as actual action figures in the plot. I mean, Putin is still there, by the way, as a octogenarian off in the in the fog someplace. But the action is actually taking place at what you would call sort of the assistant secretary, uh, flag officer level of government. And I thought that was a real plus for the book, because I think, as you as you said, Elliot, it's much more realistic. I mean, it's not like Harrison Ford really is going to, as president of the United States, kill all the terrorists that have taken over Air Force One. Right. I mean, you'd like to think so. but <laughs> You don't think you don't think Donald Trump could have done that? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll just leave that right there. Uh, Now, uh, in the book, uh, you I I mean, I I didn't track down all the characters, but whenever you cited a name and I said, man, I that name is kind of familiar to me. I would I would Google it. And for example, your primary Chinese character, Lin Bao, is very close in name to a very famous Chinese military officer that was killed in mysterious circumstances over uh, Mongolia like 40 plus years ago. I guess that's a little bit inside baseball. But there are some real, <laughs> there are some real characters. Uh, for example, the uh, most senior Chinese individual depicted in the book is actually someone his name escapes me right now, but Elliot, I know you know his name, who is in power now and I think is mentioned occasionally as a potential successor to Xi if that eventuality ever does occur. So are there any other real characters that I missed? Um, there's the chief of staff of the Iranian Armed Forces, General Mohammad Bagheri, is also in the book uh, and, and, and takes up a number of pages. And that's just you know us projecting forward that, that he would would still be in that position, as well as Zaleji, which is the the name. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that's right. Right. Yes. 
you're referenced to. I would say those are not, you know, they're not like, they're not deep head fakes to, to those people saying this is what is going to happen. It's more just, you know, to give the book again, that's sort of that, that, that just that sense of authenticity that uh, you know, this, this might not be the exact future, but it's, it's another dimension uh, and where these, where these people still, still do exist. And as you'll notice, I'm sure you also notice that there are nods to um, Custom Soleimani and there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Custom Soleimani. So. I will, I will say that the very famous golf match in the book yeah, between uh, Lin Bao and a senior Chinese official is, at least in my mind, a little bit of an homage to one of my favorite writers, Ian Fleming. There's a famous scene oh. in Goldfinger where Goldfinger and Bond play a match. Very complicated head game. Um, that was in my mind as we were writing that one. But let me ask you, uh, you mentioned Suleimani and... Uh, you you probably wrote the book, the manuscript in 2019, 2020. And I detected every once in a while a little seam there where you had to somehow account for things that had begun to happen that were not part of your original storyline. Boy, boy, are you smart. Did you used to work for the CIA or something? Some people say so, but you wouldn't know by looking at me. I'll let Elliot, um, I'll let Elliot feel that <laughs> but one. But there was the issue of Suleimani and also the COVID uh, oh. pandemic. I, I noticed a couple of places where I could kind of feel that you were inserting that in there sort of at the end of the writing process. Well, both of those, you know, we had written, um, we mostly written the book. I mean, when, when Suleimani was killed, uh, over the sort of winter break of 2019, 2020, I think that happened. And the next day I hopped on the phone with Jim and said, oh, we got we to gotta fix this because there's a part in the book where one of the characters has a backstory with Soleimani. And in the earlier drafts, you see a scene of the two of them together. And Soleimani is sort of towards the end of his life offering some thoughts to this character about his, his place in the world and his career in the Iranian security forces. What his death forces to do was basically to cast that scene as a flashback to before Soleimani's untimely, untimely demise. Um, so, and then obviously the same with COVID. Uh, and we, I think, again, it's, you have to figure out how you want that to play. You would, you know, have totally overhauled the novel to make COVID a central force. And I think, you know, we chose to listen. We can't ignore that this happened at this point. Obviously it's going to be something that people are still talking about in the year 2034, but it's, it's probably more appropriate just to have a couple of nods. And so I think there's only, it's mentioned maybe two or three places in the book. And there's one character uh, who's actually the, the national security advisor in the book. And he has yes. something that happens to him. Uh, mm-hmm. He loses a child during the, during the pandemic, right. uh, very unexpectedly. And that is something that kind of, you know, helps you understand who he is at his core. Right. Well, we've, uh, uh, spent almost all our time and we haven't mentioned one of the most colorful characters in the book, Wedge Mitchell, <laughs> a, a fighter pilot who does something uh, reminiscent of Dr. Strangelove yeah. uh, at one point in the novel. So uh, is there anything else that you'd like to mention uh, uh, in closing to encourage people to pick up a really excellent read? Admiral? Um, I would say people have asked me, um, how should I feel when I'm done with this novel. Should I be scared? Should I be kind of totally depressed? And I will say this, I'm not giving anything away, but it's not the apocalypse. The world does not end here. Um, 
And here's my answer to that question. How should I feel? I hope you're reading it in, in your living room and you have a bay window that looks out on a garden. And I hope you put the book down and you look out and you see maybe a child taking my dog for a walk on a nice spring day. And I hope you say to yourself, life is good. Let's not screw this up. Elliot? No, uh, those are my, my sentiments, exactly. So it's, a, you know, I, I've told people for a grim book uh, or a book that deals in a grim subject, we had a lot of fun writing it, but we, we very much wrote this book with the spirit of, you know, let's, let's imagine these events so they never occur. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you both about the very excellent book, 2034. Over to you, Jamil. Harmon, thanks so much for hosting this conversation. Admiral Severides and Elliot, thanks so much for being part of this, for writing what is obviously an amazing novel and a great story. And frankly, a a story that should give us all pause and and food for thought as we look uh, towards this uh, geopolitical competition uh, that's inevitably uh, going to continue and expand over the next uh, days, weeks, months, years, and and, and decades, as you point out. Thanks again to all our audience for tuning in. NSI Live is produced by the National Security Institute. Please join us for our next event on April 22nd from 5 to 6 p.m. where we'll speak with Congressman Mike Waltz, a congressman from Florida's 6th Congressional District, where he'll share his insights on critical national security issues ranging from things like China's growth as a military, economic, and space power to its complicated ties with Wall Street and its treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email to nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what you we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show and find our other podcasts like NSI's Fault Lines and Iron Butterfly, which we host in conjunction with the amazing women of the intelligence community who Carmen is a keyboard member of. Thank you to all of you for being here, and thanks to the audience. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.